Well, good morning. Yeah, have a seat. That's great. Um, so I realize that uh, some of you may be sitting here saying, oh my gosh, the 915 service started kind of late. What has happened? Um, welcome to Daylight Savings Time. We're glad that you're here. It's, uh, it's kind of funny to, you know, before I was a parent, I, as a child, I was like, oh my gosh, Daylight Savings Time. It's amazing. Daylight is extended. I can play and play and play and play. And then I had kids and then I realized, wait a second, so I'm supposed to wake up my children now? That's like the cardinal sin. You do not wake your children, but now you have to. And then when they go to bed at night, then they're asking, why do I have to go to sleep when the sun has gone down? And um, so the you know, perspective has changed a little bit. Well, we're going to be talking about that a little bit this morning. But what I want you to do is um, I want you all to think of a moment in your life. Think of a, um, maybe it was a decision that you've made. Uh, maybe it was an event that happened, whether good or bad, but that event, that moment, that decision changed the entire course of your life. It sort of set in motion a series of events that you had no idea could have ever possibly happened. Um, you kind of expected it, but until you walked through it, you had no idea. As I think about this, there was, I, I mean, I got to tell you all how I became an Aggie. Um, it set in course, a motion that was unstoppable. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, I grew up in Austin and my uh, older brother bought me a pair of A&M sweatpants. And so I accepted those and everybody wants to be like big brother. And so I was like, boom, I'm in, I'm an Aggie growing up in Austin. That means I'm going to endure years of persecution until I finally come to the promised land. And, um, and so I did, I did my duty and, uh, you know, I got involved at A&M and then at Grace Bible Church and then employed, you know, blah, blah, blah. And here I am. My brother had no idea when he bought these cheap sweatpants that that was going to turn into me standing here today, but I'm so grateful for it. Or I think about uh, for anybody that's, uh, that's had kids, there is something that just changes like that. Like you put on a brand new perspective and you see the world differently. Um, I am deeply in tune with Nerf gun technology. Like I know exactly what kind of guns to buy to affect the absolute best results in a Nerf gun warfare situation. I know that the big battery operated things may look good, but they're really worthless because they take forever to kind of warm up. And then dad's already swept in and boom, boom, boom. And I'm out uh, before your gun even gets started. Keep in touch with some of that stuff. Um, But I do remember also that um, my world was changed. I mean, the kids were born, Davis and Berkeley were born before that. um, I loved and still do, obviously, but I loved Andreas so much. And I thought there's no way in the world that I could, like that I have the capacity to extend love and to invite another human being into our family to love. And then boom, the moment they're born, it happens. It changes. I see the world differently. These little nine-year-olds call me out in my walk with the Lord or they, um, or they extend grace to people, which is just mind-blowing to me. Um, I see the world completely different. And what we're going to see this morning as we look at the passage in Matthew 16 is that um, Peter encountered a similar life-changing event. It's called the confession, the confession of Christ. So this morning's talk is called Confessing Christ in the Cruciform Life. It's a very difficult thing. I realized the first time I said it this morning, I was like, ooh, did not think that through. But um, the reason is uh, this passage talks about 
the, um, the confrontation that Peter has with the reality of who Christ is, and then Christ doesn't allow him or us to camp out there uh, in confession world. He calls us immediately into a life of cruciformity. And by cruciformity, it's not a buzzword, it's not a word that we commonly use, but it's quite simply living a life that's in the form or modeled after the cross of Christ. And so we move from confession to, to cruciformity. Uh, If we look at the passage, it's Matthew 16, verse uh, 13 and on. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of uh, Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? And uh, they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others uh, Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, Yeah, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and he said, oh my gosh, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, upon the rock of confession, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So the first question that Jesus asks is, who, who do they say that I am? Uh, now, if we remember back from last week, Matt uh, did a sermon or he, he spoke on uh, a passage where basically the Pharisees uh, called Jesus Satan. They committed the uh, unpardonable sin. They stood before the living, breathing, walking, miracle-making Messiah, and they called him Satan. And what happened, the, the book of Matthew from that point through this passage is going to kind of changed the tune a little bit. See, before that, Jesus went into um, Israel and he said, hey, repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. I am here before you. And then he faced rejection of the people. And so then he, got, he kind of hunkers down and he says, okay, my disciples, my boys, who do you say that I am? And he shifts. And then from this point on, through this passage on confession, he's um, laying out for them a new way for them to think through what the kingdom looks like, what it means to participate in the kingdom of God. So they responded to him, and and the answers seem uh, kind of random. You know, they're like, uh, well, some say that you're uh, John the Baptist. Um, You know, you're the one that has this message that you're calling Israel to faithfulness to prepare the way for the Messiah that's coming. The Messiah is going to come and deliver us from the evil and oppressive regimes that have lorded themselves over us and suppressed us for years. You're the one that's going to pave the way, Jesus. Others say you are Elijah. You're the one that performs the miracles and your presence shows and displays the day of the Lord's judgment. Where God is going to sweep in and uh, undo all the evil empires and make his justice and righteousness reign on the earth. Um, and you are the one that's going to signify that that's going to happen. Or maybe uh, you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. You're going to be uh, a prophet who comes and tells, you know, that old story to Israel. Okay, you're unfaithful. You know, you oppress the poor. You're idolatrous. Uh, you're going to be destroyed. And then uh, Jesus is going to, uh, or God is going to restore you and bring you back into uh, a righteous uh, um, relationship. And you look forward to that one day. And so all of these answers show and they betray basically the, the yearnings of the people at that time. The Jews at that time were just longing for salvation. Somebody please come and help us. 
God, we have longed for you for years and years and years. But those answers that they give to the question, who do they say that I am, is grossly insufficient. They all make sense. In fact, if we went to, uh, you know, if Jesus came in here and he walked around, he's like, hey, Don, who do people say that I am? Uh, Well, the common answer would be, uh, well, you know, a lot of people think that you're a really good guy. You did some great things for women's rights and for dealing with the poor. Others would say, you are a great prophet, just like Muhammad and the Dalai Lama and all these other people. Um, or others might say, yeah, you have some, some insight into the ways of God or the gods or whatever. And so we have all of these kind of images of who uh, our culture would assume that Jesus is, again, based on our preferences. But again, they are grossly insufficient. So then Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them, he's gone from kind of a passive question to now a more assertive question. He says, who do you say that I am? Guys, I've just been rejected by the very people who basically dedicate their lives um, around the fact that the Messiah is coming. And I went and stood in front of them and authenticated the signs of the kingdom and they rejected me. Guys, who are y'all saying that I am? What are you going to do with the reality of who I am? And so Peter, as he does, uh, speaks first. And he says, oh my gosh, you are the son of God. You're the Messiah. And I think we lose kind of on this side of the resurrection, we lose the power and the beauty of what he just said. For Peter to claim that he's the Messiah is one, he is the fulfillment of the righteous warrior king that would come to save Israel. I mean, think about the Jews at this time. They have every year, they have a meal that reminds them of God's faithfulness to lead them out of slavery into the promised land. Uh, So they look back to that event of God's faithfulness, but then they also look forward to the one day when ultimately God would deliver his people and establish an eternal throne of righteousness uh, in the kingdom. You are this person. You are going to do away with the armies that have oppressed us for so long. You are the righteous warrior king. But not only that, getting a little excited there, not only that, to confess Christ as Messiah is to confess him as God. You are God with us. You are Emmanuel. This is a, y'all, this is a dangerous dangerous thing that they're saying. See, for the disciples and for Peter to say, you are God, is systematically to say to all the other kings and the rulers that claim to be God, you are not. And if there's one thing that the kings of old and even today hate to be told, it's that there's somebody more powerful than them that's seeking to establish a kingdom that's very different from yours. We remember this from when Jesus was born and Herod got word that a king was going to be born in Bethlehem. And what did he do? He sent his agents out into the land to kill the firstborn males. And so he slaughtered people because he was so um, protective of his kingdom. He didn't want anybody to usurp that. Now, for the disciples to say, you are God, is for them to hitch their wagons behind a prophetic movement that says, God is here, God is now, God is establishing his kingdom it also means that they're putting a gigantic bullseye on their back for any other kings to come in and to say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not happening. I want you all to understand how deeply terrifying this could be, but ultimately they stand in front of God himself and they say, hey, it's worth it. We know who you are. We are convinced of the truth and the reality of who you are. 
I think one of the most powerful things about this entire passage is that this question, uh, uh, who do you say that I am, reverberates through the generations and it even comes to us today. We each stand essentially before Christ and we have to give an account of who we say that he is. One of the most important questions that we will ever ask or that we'll ever answer is who do we say that Christ is? Are we going to say what everybody else says? He's some sort of fulfillment of, you know, hopes and dreams and all that good stuff. Or are we going to encounter the truth of him? So for us to confess Christ in, um, in, in today's age is very different for the, than for the disciples who confessed Christ before the resurrection. See, back then they were, you know, they were oppressed by people and they longed for a savior and he was there. But for us, now we see how that plan played out. We see the cross and the resurrection and how the kingdom of God turned out. And so we stand here, but our longing is a little bit different. See, we have uh, the ability to look on into the world and to see evil and suffering and hatred all over the world. And hopefully what we can do is we can go a little bit deeper, go a level deeper and say, oh my gosh, all the evil and suffering that I see in the world is in me also. I have sinned. And uh, when we decide that we sin, we act in opposition to the kingdom of God. That means that we are in the kingdom of the world and we're separated from God. But just like the disciples confess Christ, so also we come to a place of saying, in light of the evil that's inside of me, Jesus, you died, you took on my sins uh, and the sins of the world, and then you rose again, conquering them and death. And so for us to confess Christ is uh, to admit that he is, uh, as he, he is our savior. And one of the things that happens, it's really powerful, um, after a confession of who Christ is and dealing with the reality of who he is, is that we're called into a new community. In uh, verse 17, it says, And Jesus said to him, uh, to, to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The statement says that when you live your life in a way that says that Christ is the king, uh, it changes everything. We talked about before uh, in Ephesians, we become zealous, we become tactical in our pursuit of unity within kingdom people, within the church. Uh, We become the type of radical forgivers and lovers of people and of God that makes the rest of the world say, what in the world is wrong with you? In fact, hopefully we live the type of lives that are so radically different from the world that we have to come to church once a week on Sundays just to remind ourselves that we're not crazy. What kind of love are we called to? The kind that the world says, I have no idea why you would do such a thing. Forgiveness is dumb. Who does that? It feels so good to rage against somebody who's offended you. But Christ has called us into something different, but it has to be preceded by a recognition of who Christ is. We can't do this stuff without that recognition of the confession of Christ. And I think for many of us, we are content to, uh, you know, we get to this confession passage and um, we read through and it's like, okay, that's that's great. That feels really good. Um, so I, um, depending on your tradition, I, uh, I walked down an aisle. I went to confirmation class. I went to camp, whatever it is. And I've made this profession of faith. And now I get to go see Nana in heaven. And, um, and we have this sort of ideology about what it means to, uh, to follow uh, Christ. 
Uh, But Jesus doesn't allow the disciples nor us to stay here. This isn't what discipleship is. This is the first step to get you on a path and a trajectory that he has in store. So to get a good look at that, um, let's get in. Let's get into Peter's head a little bit, um, and hopefully we'll find ourselves there too. Um, okay, so the confession. Uh, he basically said, "Okay, uh, the Messiah is here, the King, the Warrior King that's going to deliver us." Okay, boom, he's here. Uh, he's also God, uh, so that's a good thing. Uh, you know, he's powerful and strong, uh, and he has this kingdom ethic that we're still trying to kind of sort out. Um, and so, you take those three things, and you've got a recipe for warfare. Okay, we got all the pieces in place. What's the strategy? What's the next step? That we're going to take Jesus. Uh, and remember, Peter has um, all these memories about his people thousands of years ago that were, sla- that were uh, saved from slavery in Egypt through plagues and through waters parting and then coming together and destroying an army. He's got memories of marching around a wall and uh, seven times and then blowing a horn and the wall falls down and boom, we conquered the people. He's got these memories. And so it's natural that he would be saying, all right, so what's our strategy? What's next? How are we going to conquer this thing? And I think um, that we have a tendency to have a similar mindset uh, as Peter. We are a people of conquest. We're a powerful people. And when the conquest is disappointed or when Jesus puts us on a different path, we're kind of thwarted. It throws us off a lot. So let me show you what Jesus does. So um, Jesus, he's a... Straight shooter, that guy. Okay, so here's what he says. Um, Perceiving all the things that the disciples were expecting, uh, he says this. From that time, so after the confession, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. Never mind that little bit uh, about being raised up on the third day. The, um, you know, our faith rises and falls based on that. We're to be pitied most of all if that thing doesn't play out. Let's never mind that bit. Peter wasn't listening. He had an ADD moment or saw a squirrel or whatever it is, but he didn't hear that last little bit that Jesus said. He kind of pounced on uh, the unmet expectations that he had. Jesus, you're going to die? Are you kidding me? That's madness. Jesus, you have decided to be a part of a long line of people who have come and professed to be the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, and guess what happened to all of them? They died, and their people were scattered or killed. And so, Jesus, you're, you're doing that. Jesus, you are the one that when Jeremiah is sitting in Jerusalem and the city is being sacked and he's watching moms endure hardship of their children and having to do horrible and unspeakable things and evils uh, within the city. And Jeremiah looks at all of that and he says, great is your faithfulness because he knew the character of God and he looked for the Messiah one day. Jesus, to Jeremiah, you're going to say, I'm going to die. That makes no sense. At all. But we understand where Peter would have the perspective of of disappointment. And I think about all of us where we follow a Messiah that lives, but what does it look like to live in the time when he died? 
And so Jesus doesn't stop there. So, man, these poor guys, they're on this emotional roller coaster, right? So they've been seeing Jesus, like, perform all these miracles. And they're kind of confused about the things he's saying. So they're on the upswing. Things are going well. Oh, my gosh, you're the Son of God, and you're the Messiah. You're going to save us, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and you're going to die. Whoa. And so they're taken aback. And then Jesus, without letting up, he's like, oh, it's getting good. Let's go a little bit further down. And so he uh, tells them, he challenges them uh, in verse 24. It says, Uh, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and to follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, Hey, not only am I dying, um, I'm asking you to follow me. I'm asking you to go with me all the way. I want you to go to great lengths to show a love for the world that the world has never seen before. And I'm asking you to show God that your life belongs to him and to him alone. Yes, I'm asking you to go all the way for love. It's a scary thing to sign up for. So we don't look at that passage and we, we don't say, oh, okay, yeah, let's go. Yeah, we want to die. We should always look to it for opportunities to die. That's not at all what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, I want you to be the type of people that would take up our cross and carry it behind him. You know, I could sit here and I could say, um, you know, this is what it means to take up your cross and to, and to carry it. Well, f- first of all, I hope that we're the type of people that encounter the passage and say, oh my gosh, Lord, what does it look like for me to deny myself? But I can't stand up here and say, this is what it looks like in your life. This is what it looks like in your life and yours. Because what happens then is we, um, we become Pharisees and we put our standard of righteousness on other people. He's calling us to very different things. So yeah, for some people, their life, that, that may be the reality, but not for all of us. He's not asking us to be reckless uh, like that. He's just calling us to go all the way to be unlimited in our capacity to show and demonstrate love for him and for the world. And this isn't some sort of moral uh, uh, commandment, although morals kind of come with that. You know, we need to clean ourselves up and all that good stuff. That's certainly implied in there. But I just want to show you what Jesus goes on. You know, the tide of Matthew has shifted. Now Jesus is focusing on his disciples. And now everything is happening. He's living in the shadow of the cross at this point. He's moving toward Jerusalem. And so let's see what that looks like for the disciples. He tells them, in verse seventeen, or in chapter seventeen, uh, he teaches them to forego their rights. Uh, the apostles had every right to go to the temple and to not pay a temple tax. It's perfectly normal and fine, um, but Jesus said, "Pay the tax," because I don't want you to be an offense to other people. And so, for some of us. To deny or, or to pick up a cross to deny ourselves means that we forego our rights. And let me tell you something, we are a country based on rights. And that's great. We are people that forego our rights for the sake of somebody else. As we look to encounter other people, to build relationships with other people, are we thinking about our rights or are we thinking about denying our rights for the sake of another person? Uh, the next one is uh, in chapter 18. He says, have humility like a child. So children weren't even like fully human. They were just kind of things that would eventually become human. And Jesus says, you got to be like them. 
You have to have the type of humility where the entire world looks down on you, that dismisses you, doesn't give you any credibility. I want you to be humble like them to come into my kingdom. And more than that, I don't want you to lead them astray. I don't want you to lead yourself astray. Then he moves on from that and he says, if a brother is caught in sin, seek reconciliation. To take up your cross is to seek reconciliation with him. So the temptation would be to lord it over him and to hold his sin before him, which there's a place for truth, uh, absolutely. But he's saying, move toward in whatever capacity you can move toward uh, reconciliation with him. Take up your cross to be humble, to reconcile with the brother. And he gives instructions about what that would look like. And then beyond that, he gives instructions to say, you have got to be experts at forgiveness. You forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. It makes no sense at all. But this is the type of people that I want you to be. To take up your cross and to follow him is to hitch along behind somebody who has forgiven you much and therefore calls you into forgiving others much. And then ultimately what he does is he moves toward Jerusalem. He gives a perfect display to his disciples to say, this is what it looks to go all the way for love. I'll take a cross, I'll suffer punishment, um, and I will show this world the greatest act of love it's ever seen. And I want you to follow me. So Jesus calls the disciples into, do you see how this isn't, um, he's not laying out the commandments again. We've got all that stuff. He's not laying it out. He's trying to reveal to them where their heart is and he's trying to inspire and to motivate into movement. And really without any, making no bones about it, I want you disciples to know that this is what following me looks like. So Here's a couple of things. I'll, I'll walk away from that and, and, and from this passage. And there's a couple of things that I want you to, uh, to take away from this. And me, for sure. Um, one is, um, if you haven't gotten to that confessing Christ bit, uh, that's the most important thing to do. So you, you can't really move to all these other things because, frankly, you don't have the ability or power to do it. Uh, confessing Christ is the first thing, recognizing that you are a sinner. He has saved you and put your trust and faith in him. Boom. That is your application. For the rest of us in here, maybe we need to open the book back up and to see what carrying our cross looks like. Here's one of the things that really stands out to me. Um, and I, you know, as I was looking through the passage, I thought, Ugh, it hit me a little bit hard. Um, we are a people uh, that are addicted to uh, um, safety. Um, we have an idol of safety in our people uh, and in our world. And so here's what I would challenge you with. Um, one of the things that this is where this idol of safety was exposed one way for me was uh, I am a, uh, I'm the helicopter dad. I am walking all around. Gosh, if you go to playgrounds, you see the dads like everywhere and they're blocking and making sure, uh, you know, a meteor doesn't fly out of the sky and hurt their kid or some other just equally impossible thing would happen. Um, and so I'm the helicopter dad. Uh, and so then my kids start to encounter other kids that are not like them. And so my son comes home and he's been, uh, and he's been, you know, bullied or made fun of or, um, and so everything in me wants to climb on the bus and to kind of make things right, you know, follow the line of Judah, follow that, follow his ways. Um, and thankfully, I'm married to a person that's, you know, further down the road than I am in many ways. And she says uh, to my son, I wonder what that boy is going through. 
why does he um, respond like that? Why is his default uh, to make fun of and to hit him? And then what would it look like to be friends with that boy? That's madness. That makes no sense. And there's a time to not do that, but there are many times that we miss where there's a time for us to move us and our children into friendship, even when it's risky. But I don't like that. I like being safe. We worship an idol of, of comfort, of convenience, we don't want to get interrupted. We have our calendar set. We have our schedule set. And um, well, except for cell phones and iPads, we don't want to be interrupted. We love the little pings. Um, but beyond that, don't, don't interrupt us. We have the way the day is going to be set. Finally, I, I would just say that we uh, don't know how to deal with disappointment. We have a conquest mindset that says, if I do my inductive Bible studies, if I'm involved in a small group, if I confess Christ, if I do all of these things, then life is generally going to work out for me. And I would say, with, um, with few exceptions for our congregation, this is kind of the way life has worked out for a lot of us, myself included. I kind of things work out for me. I find myself easily attracted to comfortable. I have the choice to be comfortable. And so I'm kind of addicted to it. And I find myself resistant to any um, calling or any challenge to move into areas of discomfort. And so I pray that as we go, that we would look at this passage at Matthew 16, that we would just allow it to evaluate us, to say, where where do I need to die to myself and and to pick up my cross? So I know I've talked um, to, uh, you know, a lot of kind of young parents, just what it's like to have kids and, and all that good stuff. Um, but I want to I read you a poem by a, uh, by a lady named Jill Briscoe. Have y'all heard of her? Anybody heard of her? She kind of, she was at a conference a few weeks ago, and I don't know, Andrea just cried a lot afterward. It was pretty amazing. Uh, but she was born in 1935. She's kind of getting on up there in, uh, in years. And she's faithfully served the Lord for, uh, she was in, uh, uh, her husband was in pastoral ministry. They went all over the world uh, training pastors and teachers. Uh, she was, uh, she wrote this poem that I'm going to read. Uh, and she was basically, she was in India and just exhausted. She's like, oh my gosh, uh, I can't wait for this trip to be done. It's hot and nasty. There's not a ton of fruit uh, from this ministry. I just want to get back into my bed. And you kind of feel a sense of entitlement. I, I've paid my dues. I've faithfully served the Lord for years and years and years. And then she uh, lays in bed at night. Interestingly, after her husband uh, preached a sermon on, you know, following Christ faithfully through the years, and she's sitting there saying, oh my gosh, I hope those young ones uh, heard the message. So then she says, she goes to sleep and she says, I saw a cross alone, discarded, laying at rest against a wall. Who'd laying down such a holy symbol? Who'd abandon life's faith call? Then I hear a voice so dear, familiar, ask the question pierced me through. Who is it that you're expecting carrying it home for you? How could I lay down that crossbeam? How to think that no one saw? Who did I expect to lift it? Carry it to heaven's door. Jesus, Jesus, please forgive me. Carry thou your cross for me all the way to hell to save us. Help me carry mine for thee. I'm no hero, special woman, just a lady old and gray. But my cross, Lord, I will carry it. Home, Lord, home, Lord, all the way. 
So the challenge is we all come to points where we feel the need and the desire to put our cross down, carried it long enough, and we don't get to sit the bench. We pick it back up and we carry it all the way. And that's the life that Christ calls us into. Y'all bow with me. Lord, to say thank you for giving us the cross to carry is difficult to understand. But Lord, you have given us a hope and an empowerment to carry our cross because we see the prize set before us. You allow us, Lord, to say with Paul, if we carry our cross to live as Christ and to die as gain, Lord, please help us to have that perspective. Help us to know, oh Lord, what it means for us to go all the way to show the world your love and to show our love for you. Please help us, Lord. We give thanks to you, Christ, for all these things. In your name we pray, amen. Good news, you're, you're dismissed. Also, don't even worry about the chairs. They just stay there until next week. Amazing. Praise the Lord and hallelujah. And that's maybe what you took away today. So y'all are dismissed. Enjoy your Sunday.